The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, with that, let's go to God's Word together. I want to, before I get to Acts chapter 15, verses 30 to 41, so we're going to finish Acts chapter 15, uh, the conclusion. I think this is the third part or the third sermon on Acts chapter 15, a long chapter. By way of introduction and reestablishing context for what we're going to see in Acts 15, I do want to read Ephesians 3, uh, verses 1 through about 10. This is very important. Because I said, I think it was two weeks ago, that if you look at Acts chapter 15, Acts 15, there are many things about it, but one of the things, it's a, a chapter of conflict. And I enumerated, I think, four conflicts. I found another one this week. There's five. Five conflicts going on in Acts chapter 15. The conflict where some troublemakers went up to Paul's church, started teaching heresy, and they started attacking him and Barnabas personally. And Paul and Barnabas didn't back down. And smoke was flying everywhere. So that was a a dispute or a controversy or disagreement. And then we found out number two was that Peter, the apostle, came to visit Paul's church in Antioch. And Peter uh, was influenced negatively by these troublemakers from Jerusalem who came to attack Paul. And Peter got deceived and led astray and even kind of turned on Paul and the Gentiles. And so Paul had to confront Peter publicly to his face in front of everyone. How humiliating for the head apostle Peter. That's recounted in Acts chapter 2. So that's the second conflict. And it was not resolved, this theological matter. So then they had a huge church-wide ecumenical council in Jerusalem at headquarters. Paul and Barnabas went there, some other representatives. All the apostles were there. The troublemakers were there. Uh, They had a heated debate that went on for quite some time, and there was conflict in that debate. That's the third conflict. Uh, All the other conflict that I didn't mention previously was in... Galatians 2, Paul mentioned that when he's talking about these deceivers that came up from Jerusalem telling the Gentiles, yeah, you could be leaving Jesus and be a Christian, but you also need to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses if you want to be a real Christian. And and Peter got swayed by those guys and kind of caved, turned his back on Gentile Christians. And so also Barnabas, who had been traveling with Paul for two years, actually got a little swayed as well. And Paul had to, Paul, Barnabas, you've got to be kidding me. You've just traveled with me for two years. You saw what God did among the Gentiles over 1,200 miles, saving Gentiles through the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And now you're starting to believe Peter and these Judaizers? Seriously, Barnabas? And then Barnabas came to his senses. He didn't go as far as Peter. But it, it warranted a conversation and an exhortation on the part of Paul towards his friend and at one time mentor Barnabas. So that's conflict number four. And then today's passage, we're going to look at conflict number five. And this is the, the, the hottest conflict of all in this chapter between two of the best of friends. So we're going to read about that. Barnabas and Paul have a bitter disagreement as they're about to embark on their second missionary journey. Uh, before we get there, look at Acts chapter, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, and just follow along with me, setting the context. Uh, starting at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prince, so Paul is now, it's about the same time, he's actually uh, embarked on a second missionary journey, and he's writing to Gentiles who believe in the gospel as the apostle, and he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, not Jews, you Gentile Christians, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, God gave me, Paul, a special stewardship responsibility that I was supposed to give to you Gentiles. It was a stewardship responsibility given to me. It wasn't given to Peter. It wasn't given to the 12 apostles. It wasn't given to James, the half-brother of the Lord. It wasn't given to anybody at the Jerusalem church. It was given to me, the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. A special stewardship responsibility. Paul was called by God for a special commission that was different and unique from the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. It was a stewardship responsibility. He was accountable to God for it. It was a gift. 
And what was that gift? It was this new revelation that he got from God that he was to impart to the Gentiles and even to the world. And he gets more detail about it. Well, what was the stewardship responsibility that God gave you, Paul, that he didn't get anybody else, give anybody else? Verse 3. Well, that by revelation, that means God Almighty somehow uh, tore through the heavens and communicated directly with the Apostle Paul. It was either through a dream, it was through a vision, maybe an, even an audible voice. We don't know. But this was direct, supernatural, special revelation to Paul. Paul, who was an apostle. Paul, who was a prophet. And God gave Paul new revelation that was never found in the Old Testament. God gave Paul new revelation that Jesus never talked about for three and a half years as he taught his disciples. God gave Paul new revelation that you will not find in the four Gospels. It is new information, new revelation about the Gentiles. Relative to the gospel. This is amazing. Uh, that by revelation, there was made known to me the Apostle Paul. The mystery. Okay, that's the key word. The mystery. The mysterion. As I wrote before in brief. So use the word mystery uh, three times in this passage. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 9. This mystery. What is a mystery? Uh, a mystery. It's not like the English word mystery. We think of a mystery that's something that cannot be resolved or discovered or known. In other words, it remains a mystery forevermore. Not in the New Testament. 27 times this word is used in the New Testament. Mystery, musterion. And what it means is new revelation that is being given by God, special revelation, to somebody in the church, and it's information that was never revealed before. It wasn't given in the Old Testament. Uh... And you can't find it in the Old Testament. It's new revelation. Four times Jesus used this word mystery, mysterion, in the Gospels. Mostly with reference to the kingdom of God. And it was new information Jesus was giving about the kingdom of God relative to Israel. Four times that word is used in the Gospel. Or three times, actually. Twenty times Paul uses the word mystery in his epistles. Twenty times. This word is only used 27 times and 20 of those are by the Apostle Paul. So God gave Paul mysteries that he did not give the other 12 apostles. God gave mysteries of information and new information to Paul that he did not give Peter, who was the head apostle of the 12. God gave new information to Paul that he didn't give to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so Paul had all this new revelation as Jesus was making special visits to Paul. Sometimes unbeknownst to the other apostles. And so Paul's getting all this new information, some of which the apostles have never heard before. And so they hear what Paul's teaching and they're like scratching their heads. What? What is he? What is Paul saying? Why is he saying that? Jesus never said that. Jesus never told us that. Paul didn't get trained for three and a half years personally by Jesus like we did. What in the world? Where is Paul getting this information? And these are the 20 references to mysteries that Paul writes about. And so this is one of those mysteries. New revelation, given to Paul that wasn't given to the other apostles. Well, what is this mystery? As I wrote in brief, but verse 4, if I were to ask you, what is the mystery that Paul's talking about here? I'll read verse 4 by referring to this. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, uh, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It's not in the Old Testament. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, starting with Paul and his buddy Barnabas, who was called an apostle in Acts 13, what he's talking about not primarily the 12 apostles of jesus he's talking about himself and his associates as an apostle and silas this mystery given to the apostles like paul and some prophets like silas who was also an associate of paul new testament prophets not old testament prophets new testament prophets it's new information verse six to be specific that the gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body Many people make a mistake and say, oh, the new information, the mystery given to Paul here in Ephesians and in Colossians is that the Gentiles can now be saved. Wrong answer. That That is not the mystery. That's not new information. Gentiles got saved in the Old Testament. A Gentile is a non-Jew. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that Gentiles would be saved through Abraham and through the Messiah. So that was a promise way back in Abraham's days, 2000. So this is not, 
It's not that self, uh, Gentiles will be saved. Job, oldest book in the Bible. Job was a saint. Job was not a Jew. Job was a Gentile. Let's go back even further. Gentiles who got saved. How about, let's see, there was Adam and Eve. They got married, had a kid. No, a couple kids. No, they had a zillion kids. Uh, and then they had, let's see, Cain and Abel. Abel. Oh, Abel, a man of righteousness. So Abel got saved. And Abel, get this, was not a Jew. Abel was a Gentile. He did not get circumcised as far as we know. He did not have to obey the law of Moses because Moses did not exist. There it is. Gentile salvation. That is not the mystery. Well, what is the mystery? Well, Paul goes on in more detail. It does have to do with the Gentiles. So here's the message. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're on equal ground with the Jews. Oh. Now he's starting to get specific. Fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That's a revelation. You will not find the phrase the body of Christ anywhere in the Old Testament. Doesn't exist. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. That's part of the revelation. The new information. The body of Christ. But specifically regarding the body of Christ, that the Gentiles are not only fellow heirs, they are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, that is salvation through, and here's the main point, the new information, the mystery. They are brought into the salvation, a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ through not the Jewish community, not through circumcision, not through the Mosaic law, not through becoming a Jew first, but through the gospel. There it is. So in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, all the way up until Moses specifically, if you wanted to become a part of the assembly of God's people, identify with God's community. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised. Then you had to abide by the Mosaic law. That didn't save you, but you allowed you entrance into the community of God. So... The door to knowing the creator of the universe was through the Jewish door. And you had to go through the Jewish door, the external sign of circumcision if you were male, and then abiding by the commandments of Moses. And then within that context, you could still find the gospel of grace, of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. But you had to go through the Jewish door. And that was true all the way from starting with pretty much Abraham and then specifically through Moses, 1400 B.C., for 1,400 years, even through the time of Christ, all 33 years, Jesus never renounced that. He admitted, yes, it is through the Jewish door. You must come through the Jewish door. You must be circumcised. You must submit to the law of Moses. And in addition, you must submit to me, the Messiah, who is predicted in the law of Moses. Then when he died and rose again from the dead, went to heaven. Now God changed everything in terms of which door you go through. Now you don't have to go through the Jewish door. Now you go through, get this, the gospel door. That's the mystery. Paul is the one that introduced the gospel door and only the gospel door. Now Peter believed in the gospel door, but he was also, yeah, you go through the Jewish door and the gospel door. Like the Jewish door is like the screen door. And Paul said, no, we don't need a screen door. Get rid of your screen door. There's one door. It's the gospel door. It is salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works, in Jesus Christ, in believing in him alone, that he died for your sins, that he was punished by the Father for all of your sins, that he was buried, rose again, reigns on high, and salvation is only through him. And it is by believing in him. It is by faith. It's not works. Nothing you can do to save yourself. It's not doing the works of the law. Not getting circumcised. Ain't going to do it. And so that's what Paul is talking about. So Paul introduced this mystery through the grace of God, the gospel door. And now, so when we go and evangelize people the world over, we don't have to tell them, well, you need to become a Jew first. No, it's you just believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that created a tremendous confusion and disturbance to many of the Jewish Christians, including the 12 apostles, including Peter, including James, the half-brother of the Lord. Uh, And so that was the controversy that just blew up in Acts chapter 15. So that's just by way of summary. And so that's why Peter, uh, it took him a while to get caught up to speed. He needed a revelation from Jesus himself uh, from heaven to get straightened out. And he needed some reminders. He needed a public rebuke from the Apostle Paul and from everybody to get shamed. And it finally sunk in. Peter got it. Lord, I, I get the message. It's through your gospel. 
and your gospel alone. Salvation apart from works. And so at the end of his life, Peter writes this letter, Second Peter, and he's exhorting the Christians that he's worked with. And he says, um, believe in the scriptures. And, and by the way, yeah, Paul, my associate or my, my friend, the apostle, he, he also writes scriptures. Believe his scriptures, too, is equally authoritative. And yeah, no, I understand that Paul can be confusing. And, and I understand that Paul can be very hard to understand because Peter didn't understand Paul sometimes. And he said, his letters are very difficult to understand. And the unstable, they distort what he writes. They misrepresent what he says. Don't do that. Paul is a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul and I, we preach the same gospel. So near his death, Peter totally affirmed the ministry of Paul. But ever since Paul began his ministry, everywhere he went, uh, there was tremendous resistance, primarily from Jews. Unbelieving Jews and, get this, professing Christians who were Jews. And we've seen it through Acts. We're going to see it all the way to chapter 28. He ends up in jail because of Jews who don't understand it. So let's now go to Acts chapter 15 uh, with that background and that context. And we're going to look at uh, the beginning of Paul's second journey, part 1, verses thirty. 41. We're just going to get launched or really just this is preparation for uh, journey number two. Just by way of reminder, the Apostle Paul just finished his first missionary journey. It was the first missionary journey in the history of the church. It took two years. He went with his buddy Barnabas, who was actually an older mentor at the time. They traveled 1,200 miles, planted many churches, primarily focusing on Gentiles, pagans, Greeks, Romans, non-Jews. They initially took John Mark, the young man who was a helper with them. Maybe he was in his early 20s. We don't know how old he was. He was a cousin of older Barnabas. So they had a missionary team of at least three. And in the first leg, they go to the island of Cyprus. They finish that. And then they go through the uh, dangerous Mediterranean waters of the sea there. And then they end up at the port uh, at a place called Perga. And it's early on, maybe six months into the journey. And then John Mark, for whatever reason, abandons them, deserts them, bails on the mission team, bails. We, we saw this back uh, in chapter 13 where the Greek word used there, very specific, very rare, where it says that John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. And the only other time uh, that word is used is talking about when a demon leaves a body, left like a demon, whoosh, scattered, fear, fearful. And it doesn't tell us why he left. It just said he deserted them. So here it is two years later. Paul and Barnabas come back from their missionary journey. They go back to their home church in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They gather the church together. They uh, share what God has done. Everybody's rejoicing and celebrating. They stay there for a long reprieve, getting refreshed. Then they have this huge blow-up of false teachers coming into the church. And then Peter's uh, brought into it. And they're taking Paul to task. And then they don't resolve it. It blows up. They have the Jerusalem Council. Uh, there's debating going on. Uh, tempers are rising. Emotions get high. And finally, God intervenes, brings unity to the apostles and elders. And a decree is issued confirming that Paul is a legitimate apostle. His gospel is legitimate. The salvation of the Gentiles who believe is real. They don't have to become Jews. And that is final. That is God's word forevermore for the church and all of humanity. That salvation is by grace through faith in Christ apart from human works. Amen. Definitively etched in eternal stone. That was what was accomplished in Acts 15. And that's why I believe Acts 15 could be the most important chapter in the book of Acts. God has made it clear of how to get right with him. So, okay, whew, we got through that trial. You know, when Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, Jesus said from heaven, Saul, now that you're saved, you're going to serve me. You're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And guess what? It is not going to be easy. You are going to be brutalized. You are going to undergo persecution. Your life from here on is going to be filled with trials. Read it in Acts chapter 9. It's there. That is a promise from Jesus. Well, how encouraging is that? Your life is going to be filled with trials. Well, you know, as it sunk in, I would imagine that Paul's thinking, yeah. Boy, this is hard stuff. This is 
This is a high calling. This is a hard calling. I'm getting great resistance. I'm getting sick as I travel. I am subjected to horrible weather. I almost drowned in the sea a few times. People don't believe what I'm saying. They spit at me. They scorn me. They chase me out of town. Sometimes they catch me and they try to kill me and they throw rocks at me. They catch me. They throw me in prison. They whip me. Jesus, you were right. That typifies my life. But I bet one thing that Paul didn't probably initially believe or understand was that when Jesus said, uh, Paul, you're going to have trials and tribulations the rest of your ministry as an apostle, he probably wasn't thinking that that was going to come from people inside the church. Yeah, the enemies of Christ, but not necessarily friendly fire. But when you read his epistles, you see there's a lot of... Supposedly friendly fire, and sometimes it was very unfriendly. And that's what he's subjected to, and it, that's a theme all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see that. So let's go ahead and look at Paul's, the beginning of Paul's second journey. So they've been refreshed. Conflict was resolved. They're back at headquarters in the church of Antioch. There's great unity, and Paul is prompted by the Spirit of God. You know what? Let's go do it again, Barnabas. So let's go ahead and look at it. Three points here, uh, just to summarize. The beginning of the second missionary journey, Acts 15, 30 to 41. Let's look at it. Point number one is the preparation for journey number two. Preparation. If you want to have a successful missionary trip, whether it's for one week, two years, or the rest of your life, you need proper preparation. Preparation in, a, in many different areas. And sometimes it takes a lot of time. Sometimes preparation is hard work. It is very common for new believers, young believers, excited believers who are filled with exuberance and enthusiasm and just the refreshing new taste of salvation. Lord Jesus, I want to go serve you. I want to be a missionary the rest of my life. I want to go now. I, I think I actually had that thought when I was 19. I did. I want to go now. And then some wise people came around and said, no, actually, you need to finish the semester of college. And then you, like, need to graduate and do your homework. So I was kind of using an excuse to get out of school. Be spiritual. I don't do homework. I want to be spiritual. So I had to learn the lesson the hard way. But that's very common. People got a great desire. Sometimes it's short-lived. So when people come to me, oh, I want to serve in missions. I want to be a missionary. Oh, okay. First thing I'm thinking is, what kind of preparation do you have currently? And what kind of preparation are you willing to subject yourself to or submit to to be properly prepared by God for a successful mission? Moses was prepared for 40 years. Paul had been prepared for 15 years almost before he went on his first missionary journey. And that is a man who was trained in the synagogue by the greatest Old Testament scholars ever. That is a man who was personally visited by Jesus and saved and commissioned personally by the risen Christ. And that's by a man who was visited regularly by Jesus with divine revelation. Even Paul needed preparation extensively so before he went on his first missions trip. Preparation is huge. So let's go ahead and look at it. Verses 30 to 35. Part of the preparation also had to be, they had uh, to go on the second missionary trip. The preparation that had to take place and be settled once and for all was theological preparation, the solid foundation of what the message is. Well, it's the gospel of Christ by grace through faith apart from works. That had to be settled. That was part of the preparation. Paul couldn't continue going around talking to Gentiles, preaching what he was preaching while the leadership in Jerusalem is questioning his ministry. That cannot happen. Jerusalem has to be unified with Antioch. That's all there is to it. There cannot be a divided church. So there had to be preparation regarding finalizing the clarity of the simple gospel message. Also needed preparation was the reputation of the Apostle Paul. I already mentioned that not only his critics were criticizing him and suspicious of him, but the 12 apostles were. And even James, the half-brother of the Lord, he didn't know who Paul was. Paul had to be validated, commended, commissioned. Equally so with the other apostles. 
That's part of the preparation. And then the last part of the preparation was the unity of the body of Christ. All saved Jews, all saved Gentiles, one body in Christ, we are together. And so that's what we see all comes to fruition by the grace of God. So let's go ahead and look at verses 30 to 35. The preparation before they start on their second trip. So after the Jerusalem council and they got their letter and they got a decree from the apostles and the elders confirming that Paul's gospel was legitimate, Gentiles are saved by the gospel, not by getting circumcised. Verse 30. So when they were sent away or commissioned is literally the Greek word with authority, with the blessing of the leadership in Jerusalem, they went down to Antioch. Who? Barnabas, Paul, Two witnesses who were highly respected in the Jerusalem church, Judas and Silas, and probably some others. So that's a testimony of two or three witnesses. They went down, they left Jerusalem, they went back to Antioch, the Gentile church, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So they called the whole church together. Hey guys, yeah, it's been a while, I know it's been six months, a long shepherd's conference, six months, but we're back now. We had a council in Jerusalem, representatives from uh, the leadership in Jerusalem from our church and from several other churches. Actually, we had uh, extensive debate. It got emotional. Uh, there was great turmoil here when we left. I understand that uh, many of you were uneasy because it was not resolved. Many of you were confused and that makes sense. But we clarified it all. And God, through his grace and through his Holy Spirit, has brought unity to the leadership of the church and to the body of Christ. And here are our results and the conclusion you as gentiles are saved by grace through faith apart from works in the gospel of jesus christ and you don't have to become circumcised or obedient complying always with the mosaic law and boy they just celebrated and that's what it says so let's go ahead and look at it so they went sent away they went down to antioch having gathered together the whole congregation they got together large group verse 31 probably could be thousands of people. We know from earlier this is a mega church. They congregate at times together, and then they meet in smaller groups throughout. And they had a formal letter. So Silas and Judas and Paul and Barnabas, they read this letter to the body, and it says the congregation, they rejoice because it was so encouraging. Parakaleo, paraclete, paraclete. That's the Holy Spirit. It was incredibly encouraging. Amen. They're rejoicing. Praise God. Thank you for your simple gospel, Jesus, that I don't have to get saved by doing good works because I can't do it. I am sinful. I am imperfect. I need your help. I need your grace. That's what they were celebrating. Thank you for saving me because I can't save myself. That is what is being celebrated. Verse 32, Judas and Silas, who are these guys? Well, they came with Paul and Barnabas. They were representatives of the Jerusalem church. They were prophets, also being prophets themselves. They encouraged parakaleo, parakaleo. It's a beautiful word. Like I said, the, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the paraclete. Parakaleo has many meanings. One of the meanings is encouragement. So the Holy Spirit, the encourager. You know sometimes how even when things are horrible as a Christian, the promise of the Bible is you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And you can be going through the worst imaginable human trial, and yet somehow, some way, mysteriously, you have a deep-seated joy and peace that cannot be explained. And you are encouraged in your soul. You know what that is? That's the work of the paraclete, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Only he can do that. Only Christians can experience that. If you are not a Christian, you can't experience that. It is supernatural. Paracleto, a beautiful word. One pastor rightly says that uh, parakaleo is a complex verb and word and, and means all of the following. Because it says, Judas and Silas went to all the people and they encouraged the Christians. They encouraged the brother. They parakaleoed. Well, what were they doing? Here's what it means. Training, encouraging, counseling. That means giving advice. Correcting. Ooh, don't do that. Comforting in the midst of sorrow. Cheering like a coach, go get them, pumping them up. Hang in there, persevere, and challenging. Seriously. It is a loaded term, and that's what they were doing. So Judas and Silas, they're encouraging the congregation, and as a result, it says, and they also strengthened the brethren, they upheld the brethren, they lifted up the Christian. That's what encouragement does. It lifts people up who are down, who are depressed, 
who are sullen, who need comfort. And the Spirit of God does His work for the truth of His Word through His people, and people are lifted up. They rise above because of the work of God. And they're stronger as a result. No pain, no gain. They're strengthened. That's God's promise. And they did it to the whole, the brethren. That's the believers. And and get this, with a lengthy message. I love that. A lengthy message. Man, this was like a three-hour sermon. So if I go over three minutes... Well, anyway, it's a different topic. With a lengthy message from the Old Testament truths, from new revelation that they got from God, new revelation they had from Paul... Revelation they had from the other apostles in Jerusalem, encouraging them with the word. By the way, strengthened, lifted them up. And it's referring to lifting up, strengthening on the inside, in the soul of a person that affects their mind and how they think and their countenance, their conscience, everything about it. The internal man they were strengthened. Well, how do you strengthen someone like that? How do you encourage somebody who is totally down, discouraged, needs comfort, in sadness, in depression? There's only one way. It's at the end of that verse. And in the rest of this passage where it says they encourage them with the word of the Lord at the end of verse 35, with the word of God, with scripture, with the Bible, the living, active scripture. That's the only way. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of the Bible and penetrates our heart, mind, soul, and conscience to feed our soul, encourage us, strengthen us, and help us grow. If you cut yourself off from God's word, God's teaching, the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his scripture, yeah, no wonder you're vulnerable to depression, wrong thinking, sadness, Gloominess makes sense. So it was the word of God they're using. Verse 33, not human wisdom, not psychobabble. It's the word of God. Revives the soul. Verse 33, after they had spent time there, uh, Judas and Silas, they were sent away. They were commissioned. They were formally greeted and blessed. Thank you so much, Judas and Silas, for coming here and bringing unity to our church and, and bringing leadership and exhorting us from the word of God and encouraging our hearts. This is a very favorable greeting to Judas and Silas. By the way, Paul probably met Silas in this whole ordeal. Paul probably didn't even know who Silas was. But after duking it out for uh, weeks and months on end in the midst of a controversy, Paul got to know Silas in Jerusalem, and then he got to travel with him 300 miles and spend extensive time with him here in his home church. And Paul came to truly, tremendously respect Silas. Man, this guy is solid. He is a man of God. He is a prophet. He is amazing. I need that guy. That's what Paul's thinking in the back of his mind as he says bye to Silas and sends him off 300 miles to Jerusalem. And they were sent away from the brethren in peace. Perfect unity has been resolved. That's awesome. God does that to those who had sent them out. Verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. That was their church. Last we heard, there were five guys at the church of Antioch who were the like pastors of the church, Paul, Barnabas, and three other men. And so Paul and Barnabas, are they stay there. And they continue to teach and lead the people and establish leadership and be pastors. It's what they're doing. So they stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching. There it is. It's the Word of God. It's the ministry of the Word of God. That is the priority for a pastor. What does a pastor do? What should elders do? They minister to the people with the Bible, with biblical truth, with the gospel, with Scripture. Priority number one. It's very basic. It's what God has called them to do. Not save the world. I heard on the radio this week some political slash leader slash spokesperson slash saying, and then they concluded by their dialogue by saying, because we are committed to, we've got to save the world. I'm here to save the world. That's what he said, literally. I'm here to save the world. And I'm thinking, no, Jesus already saved the world through the gospel. So the preparation, it has been established. Let's go on to the anticipation. The anticipation. This has to do with the plans and the desires of the heart, the plans of humans, which are finite, sometimes skewed, sometimes fallen, sometimes self-serving, but not always. We know Psalm 37 that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We all have desires and goals and aspirations and thinking about the future and plans, right? But if you're a Christian, you need to think biblically about the desires of your heart 
your future, your plans, and you, you and I, we need to subject all of our goals, all of our plans, all of our wants, all of our desires, my bucket list, all needs to be submitted to God, God Almighty and Jesus, my Savior. Proverbs 17 or 16 is clear. Man makes the plans, but it is the Lord who establishes the steps. That's why Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he will make your path straight. When we start trying to do things without acknowledging him, our path ain't going to be straight. It is going to be crooked. We're going to trip over rocks. We're going to run into the wall. We're going to go the wrong way. We're going to do stupid things. We're going to short-circuit the plan. We can't rely on our own wisdom. It's just constantly going back to God. Okay, God, here's my desires. I lay these before you. Please vet these for me. Speak through people. Speak through your word. Prompt me through your spirit. So Proverbs, great book. Talk about how we can't trust in our own desires ultimately. We've got to lean on God and his wisdom. So here's the anticipation as they're about to embark on their second missionary trip. You know, Paul's got an agenda and and Barnabas has an agenda. Paul has desires. Barnabas has desires. And guess what? They don't agree. They collide. Train wreck. Two different agendas or visions or methodologies. Let's look at it. The anticipation. A hiccup before the trip. After some days, verse 36, Paul said to Barnabas, let it, Hey, Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren, the Christians, in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is awesome. Paul wasn't just into the, uh, mass evangelism. Uh, Believe in Jesus. Turn or burn. Repent and be saved. And then just bail on the people. What is the goal of evangelism? That people will be saved? Well, not really. That's God's goal. The goal of evangelism is to plant the seed of the gospel. And when God does save for those who he will save, then on the human level, the goal is discipleship. So evangelism isn't an end in itself. It's plant the seed. God saves. God raises up the people. And then we are to follow up and disciple those people. That's the Great Commission. The Great Commission isn't evangelism. The Great Commission is evangelism and discipleship. So it has to be full. And that, Paul clearly understood that. We went through all these churches. We, we planted all kinds of churches. We saw all kinds of people get saved. It's been a long time. We need to go back. I'm worried about these people. They don't have divine revelation. They don't have the New Testament yet. It hasn't even been written. They have the Old Testament, some of them. They have some of the stuff I told them. They have a limited amount of information. We've got to go back. We have got to feed them. We've got to see how they're doing. We've got to guard them from false teachers. This is a key ministry. We need to go back and see how they're doing. We need to go and strengthen the brethren. That's a common phrase used throughout the book of Acts, a strengthening ministry. We're going to see that again. Uh, So that's Paul's desire. This is a good desire. So Paul and Barnabas are now they're on the same page. We need to go back and trace all the churches and encourage the brethren. Uh, Verse 37, but they disagreed on methodology or procedure. And here it is, verse 37 and 38. First part of the verse. Well, Barnabas thought this is a great idea uh, and wanted to, Okay, Paul, uh, good idea. Let's go. Uh, that's not in your Bible. I'm just throwing that in there. That's in the McManus Living Translation. That's in the white spaces. Sorry. But Barnabas agrees with Paul. And so, yeah, let's do it, man. Missionary trip number two. And by the way, Barnabas, I want to take John, Mark, my nephew. And then Paul, whoa, wait a minute. You mean the guy who deserted us in the first trip? The guy who bailed on us? The cowardly guy? The young, immature, unreliable guy? Barnabas, remember our lives were at stake? Remember how I almost got killed? That guy? No, I like, actually, I like Silas. He is reliable. He is mature. He's a prophet. No way. I'm, we are not taking John Mark. No way. No way. How do I know Paul was saying no way? Because in verse 38, Paul kept insisting, and the, the Greek verb is an imperfect tense, which means it was a continual, ongoing action. Nonstop. And Paul just kept reiterating, no way, we are not taking John Mark. No, 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 no. 
But interestingly, in verse 37, it says Barnabas, New American Standard says, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Wanted to take, that also is an imperfect verb in the Greek tense, meaning that was ongoing, continual, and nonstop. So there's Barnabas. No, I want to take John Mark. And, ba- and Paul said, no way, we are not doing And then Barnabas said, yeah, we are. I'm not leaving without him. There's no way I'm going on a missionary trip without my nephew. He needs a second chance. He needs to be encouraged. That's what the gospel's all about. The God of the second chance. The God of the third chance. We need to take John Mark. I want to go and take him with. No way. And Paul, no way. We are not taking John Mark. He put the mission is too hard. It is too difficult. It's too rigorous. He can't handle it. No way is John Mark gone and I'm not going with him. And I'm not going to go with you if you're taking John Mark. Fine. Because I'm not going without John Mark. He's my cousin. He has God can use him. He has great potential. And I'm not going with you unless John Mark. Fine. Then I'm not going with you. Fine. Then you go your way and I'll go my. Fine. I'm just acting out the Greek verbs here. (laughs) Because that's probably what kept happening there. I probably actually didn't get animated enough because look at verse 38. Paul kept insisting, Paul stopped, uh, Paul would not stop insisting that they should not take John Mark along who had deserted them, deserted like a demon. Remember that? I'm out of here. In Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And remember, he didn't go back to headquarters in Antioch. He went home to mommy in Jerusalem, John Mark did. Verse 39, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement. Sharp disagreement is actually one Greek word. Paroxysmos. 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 Paroxysm. Paroxysm. That's an English word. Look it up in the dictionary. Well, I'll do it for you. Miriam's dictionary. What is a paroxysm? A sudden, violent outburst. I wonder if they started wrestling. A sudden violent outburst, a fit of violent action or emotion. Whoo! This is the Apostle Paul and his one-time mentor, the older man, Barnabas, son of encouragement. The man of God who was filled with the Spirit of God, respected by all Christians and all churches. They go head to head. Paroxysm. Paroxysm. This word is used in the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy 29, 27 and Jeremiah 32 to refer to God's wrath and God's indignation. That's how heated it got. It it was used in Greek medical terminology in the days of Paul in reference to convulsions and epileptic seizures. So as they got into it toe to toe and they were, man, they they were turning red. Veins were popping out of their face. Really? I don't know if this was a private conversation. Man, I hope it was a private conversation. This is the epitome of quintessential model church leadership. Paul and Barnabas. There is much comfort in this reality. Because it's comforting to know that the greatest of Christian men or leaders can argue and debate and can have a sharp disagreement. And by the way, they did not come up with a resolution. They didn't make peace and harmony. Oh, okay, deal. I forgive you. I love you. Sorry for raising my voice. That didn't happen. How do we know that? Well, the words used again are so specific. There was such a sharp paroxysm that it led to the fact that they separated from one another. Another specific Greek word. Apokoristhenai. Used three, actually used two times in the New Testament. The root of this word is used in Matthew 19, 6. Uh, the root of the word, korizoto, 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 Matthew 19, 6. When Jesus said, when he talked about divorce, man. And then Paul intensifies that word for divorce by putting a preposition on the front of it, meaning it was worse than a divorce. Can you imagine? There, there is nothing more emotionally rending in a person's life and heart than a divorce, really. Save death of a loved one. And that's what this was the equivalent of. They separated. They separated from one another. Well, you know what? The devil was probably cheering, you know, in the backgrounds. 
Right on. Took them down. The leadership of the church is going down. The Apostle Paul, boom, shot his reputation. No missionary trip. End of the gospel. Church is going down. Jesus is closing his doors. You know, people have tried that for 2,000 years. Powerful, evil men. Most recently in the communist uh, Soviet Union, where literally one of the leaders predicted that he was going to shut down, eviscerate Christianity within one generation. didn't happen. So here Satan's probably celebrating. But, you know, we love the promise of Romans 8, 28, right? God works all things together for good. That includes God works good things together for good. Did you ever think about that? Because it says all things. God works good things together for good. God works ho-hum things together for good. And God works bad things together for good. And God works evil things together for good. doesn't mean God says good things or bad things are good. That's not what the verse is saying. It doesn't say God likes evil, God likes bad things. God hates evil, God hates bad things. But the promise is God promises that he will work all things together for good, including horrible things and bad things. This is a horrible thing. This is sad. This was probably devastating to the church at Antioch when the, their two leaders, their two pastors, had a blowout. A church, get this, a church split? Church split? We've been having church splits for 2,000 years. God works all things together for good. And so, well, what did God do that was good here? Well, immediately he undoes the work of the devil where the devil thought, oh, I'm going to shut down that one missionary team. And lo and behold, God works all things together for good and God creates two missionary teams. Now he's got Paul going this way and Barnabas going this way. That is awesome. And that's what uh, the verse goes on to say. So that is sharp. They separated from one another. And so Barnabas uh, took John Mark. So Uncle Barnabas... Son of encouragement. That's the nickname, by the way, Barnabas. Son of encouragement. That's his nickname. And he took old, uh, you know, he's going to take young John Mark, not just because he's his nephew, but he's a young Christian. He's immature. He needs mentoring. He needs modeling. He needs patience. He needs more opportunities. He needs to be nurtured. That is discipleship. Barnabas was the master of it. So he takes John Mark under his wing. You know what, John Mark? Let's keep plugging along. Why don't you just, just follow me? Just come with me. And so he's hiding in the shadows of the wings of the blessed, loving man, Barnabas. And he took John Mark, get this, with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That's interesting. Because Paul said, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to all the churches we planted. Well, on the first missionary trip, where did they go first? They went to Barnabas' hometown, that big 100-mile-long island of Cyprus. How fun is that? That's bigger than Tom Sawyer's island. A hundred miles. That is where... Barnabas grew up and was from, ma'am. That, that'd be fun as a kid, teenager. That's where they went first. And they traversed that entire 100 miles. And Paul and Bar Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back to all those churches. So they had churches on Cyprus that were new and young. So Barnabas is actually going to do what Paul suggested. You know what? We're going to go back. Uh, so apparently they kind of talked and agreed of what we're going to do. Fine. We're separated. Good. Okay, fine. You take that guy. All right. I'll take my guy. Where are you going? I'm going that way. Okay, then I'm going this way. So Barnabas is going to go to Cyprus, which is great because Cyprus, that was his home. You know what, John Mark? You're still recovering. You got your tail between your legs. You got a you know bad reputation a little bit. Paul, you know, he just made fun of you and probably made you feel bad. So let's go, let's go visit my family and my uncles, and they're, they're just going to love on you. And so Barnabas takes John Mark, goes to the islands, and he was probably with his family. Went there. We don't hear anything ever again from about Barnabas after this. Or John Mark. Or we do hear about John Mark, but not from Barnabas. So went there to Cyprus. We don't know what, but God uh, blessed him, no doubt, in the ministry that he had. And he was very successful in his goal. He had a goal to mentor and see John Mark mature and grow. And you know what? 10, 15 years later, we talked about this, that the Apostle Paul refers to John Mark in several of his epistles, like the book of Colossians and Second Timothy. And he, he developed a great affection for John Mark. Over time, Paul realized, wow, Barnabas was right. John Mark, man, he has matured. He has grown. He's incredibly effective. Wow, he's courageous now. And he's uh, quite the lit scholar as he writes the gospel of Mark. Amazing. And then at the very end of Paul's life before he died, he says, send John Mark to me. He is useful to me. Isn't that awesome? The reconciliation that can come only through Christ after that kind of separation. 
And then Paul, later on, like five years later, he writes in 1 Corinthians. He's, he's not holding on a grudge against Barnabas. Paul didn't have that mean, bitter streak of unforgiveness. He, he loved Jesus. He knew what the true love was. Love forgets. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And if I was kind of mad and huffy at Barnabas, I, I, got, I, re, I repent. I got over it, and I, I love Barnabas. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he makes a reference to Barnabas, commending him as an equal of his in the ministry. So uh, he said fond things about Barnabas. So Barnabas takes that team uh, to Cyprus, and then God creates the second team, and he takes Paul, and Paul chooses Silas, that incredible new prophet from Jerusalem. And Paul is joined by Silas now on the second missionary trip. So now it's not Paul and Barnabas anymore. It's going to be Paul and Silas. And that's verse 40. Paul chose Silas, and they left. And so since Barnabas went down to the sea of uh, the island of Met, or, uh, the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul still had his goal. You know what? I want to go back and visit all those churches, but, you know, Barnabas is going down there on Cyprus, so we're going to go up north and go the backside, back to those wonderful churches in uh, Pisidia Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and, you know, that place where I got, you know, beat up and killed and stoned to death. I want to go back there. And Derby. In Galatia. So that's what they do. So they go, instead of going south, they go north. And they're kind of taking a new route that way. And it was providential. It was in the providence of God because the, one of the first stops they make on missionary journey number two, they meet a wonderful young man named Timothy. And guess what? He joins Paul's missionary team. And for the next 15 years, he is, man, he is Paul's best friend. He is the most loyal friend and servant that Paul ever had. Isn't that awesome? Had they gone the other way to Cyprus and all the way around and traveled 12 or, uh, let's see, 600 miles before they got to where Timothy lived, it would have been the end of the journey. Now it's the beginning of the journey. God blesses him with Timothy, and now he gets to take Timothy on the entire second missionary journey. What a blessing. He lost John Mark, young John Mark, but he gained young Timothy. He lost reliable, wise Barnabas, but he's got the prophet and inspired men of integrity, Silas. God is sufficient. God meets their needs. God prepares them well. So let's go on to number three. After the preparation, the anticipation, and now the complication, which we picked up on beginning of verse 38, and then we'll conclude that. So Paul kept insisting that they should take, not take John Mark along with them, deserted them in Pamphylia. Uh, verse 39, there occurred such a dark, sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took John Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. Verse 40, uh, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren of the grace of the Lord. Verse 40. Now, you probably, if you're an inquiring person, at some point, as you read this passage or heard me preach, we're probably thinking, hmm, now, who is at fault? Was it Paul or Barnabas? Well, it couldn't have been Paul because he was an apostle, and apostles don't sin. Not. Did you know that the apostles had the ability to sin just as much as you and me? Isn't that amazing? What a thought. They were not made of marble. They did not stand on pillars. They did not have halos floating over their heads. They were sinful, fallen Paul, said, Paul and Peter both said that uh, to people who wanted to worship them. Cornelius wanted to worship Peter. He said, no, don't do that. I'm a man just like, I'm just as pathetic as you are. And the Lystrians or whoever they were, they wanted to worship Paul and said, don't do that. I'm a, I have the same nature as you do. I am just as wicked on the inside as you are. So who was at fault? Was it Paul or Barnabas? Well, I have actually heard sermons, dogmatic hardcore, emphatic sermons on, on both sides. Paul was being sinful. There's his temper, getting out of control again. How could he do that against Barnabas, the elder statesman, and who was a man of encouragement, led by the Spirit? There's Paul being self-willed again. I've heard that sermon preached. I remember when I heard it preached. And then I've heard plenty of sermons uh, that say uh, Paul was right because he was the apostle. And Barnabas was wrong.
two, three. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, and I've heard a rare sermon or two that said, neither Paul nor Barnabas were at fault. And that's the correct answer because if you read carefully, you realize uh, neither man is condemned. The Scripture doesn't say Paul was wrong. The Scripture doesn't say Barnabas was wrong. So we cannot conclude. We can't foist our thoughts on Scripture. Barnabas' ministry is actually endorsed because it says that he and Mark went to the island of Cyprus. And, and Paul was... Paul commended Barnabas later in his letters. Paul commended John Mark very specifically later. So Barnabas was not at fault to t- want to take John Mark. Uh, Paul is not at fault because it says right here, verse 40, Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. The entire church endorsed Paul's decision and his ministry and sent him out. That's formal recognition. And then Paul goes on to write 13 letters. And in the first line is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. God doesn't track Barnabas' ministry from that point on. God doesn't call Barnabas to write letters to be left in the Bible. So Paul was right for not wanting to take John Mark. Paul was right for wanting to take Silas. And Barnabas was right for wanting to take John Mark. And it was just a matter of perspective and how God was going to use them because they were different. Paul was focused on the mission, how hard it was going to be, what needed to be done, which was actually God's will, the mission. John Mark is not suited for the mission. So Paul's focused on the mission. Barnabas is focused on, not on the mission, but on the man. This man needs to be restored. This man needs another opportunity. Paul, you do your mission. And God be with you. I'm going to focus on the man. And they just beautifully harmonize. But the main point is, is God commends both missions. And expands the ministry. It's absolutely awesome. Verse 41. And so Paul and Silas take off. And for the rest of the book of Acts, God's going to track Paul's ministry. And verse 41. And they take off. And as he was traveling through Syria, we hear a lot about Syria today. That's going north, Damascus. Christians were there. And then all Cilicia, that's where Paul was from, Tarsus, going towards Turkey. And there were Christians there. There were churches there. Paul spent 10 years preaching in that area where he was from originally. No doubt planted all kinds of churches. And what is he doing? He's strengthening the churches, confirming the churches, says the King James Bible. And we're going to see that phrase repeated on Paul's mission trips. He is strengthening the churches wherever he goes. And that's what we need to do. We can't just be focused on evangelism. We can't just be focused on saving the world. We need also need to be focused on strengthening churches. And that means helping our saints grow in the local church and be comforted, and be counseled, and be guided, and be protected. We need pastors, not just evangelists. That's strengthening the churches. The sheep need to be fed on a regular basis. I'll close with this. I've, I've mentioned it before, but when GBF started about ten and a half years ago, we were six months, no, three months into it, and a, a local pastor uh, wanted to interview me because he wanted to hire me, even though he knew that our church just started. And he heard about me, and I went to master seminary, and yeah, and then we talked and met, and he said, yeah, I want you on my team, and uh, what I want to do, I want to use you as evangelist. I need about seven evangelists, and I'm going to be an evangelist, and we're just going to all go out, and we're going to do evangelistic Bible studies, and we're just going to evangelize all of San Jose, and you don't want to be a pastor, the church, preaching to the same people week after week. That's boring. That's not a need. The greater need is going around being an evangelist. People need the Lord, going out and spreading the gospel. So quit your job. Leave the church. I just started three months ago thinking, uh, well, actually, friend, uh, I think we need evangelists and pastors. So it sounds like you're kind of an evangelist. Why don't you do the evangelism thing and I'll be the pastor guy. And I will stay at the same boring church with the same boring people week after week and just keep doing the same old boring thing of teaching the Bible. Kind of like feeding your dog. You do the same thing every day. But he's got to eat every day. Otherwise, he's going to starve to death. I don't mind that. Actually, I, I enjoy that. Uh, he didn't say okay. But anyway, <laughs> the local church needs to be strengthened. And we thank God for every local church where he's put leadership in place via pastors, elders, and other leaders in that church to strengthen the believers that are there. Let's give him the glory for it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together and the opportunity to worship you with the saints on the Lord's Day 
and the privilege again to study your word. Thank you for the principles you've laid out that we've been able to learn and ingrain these principles in our minds, God, that they become a reality in our life. Um, from being reminded of how important it is to have a proper, solid biblical foundation before we do certain ministries, how important it is to understand the clarity and simplicity of the gospel so that we don't misrepresent it when we go out, how important it is to stand up for truth even if it gets heated, how important it is to have unity with the body of Christ. Preserve our unity here at GBF, Lord, especially among our members. And we pray all these things that you might be glorified as you use us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.